Father, focus our minds on your word now. May the familiar story, Lord, be fresh in its urgency and our understanding and our sensitivity to it. Help us understand that we are not only reading history. We're reading history for our sake. We can find ourselves, if we're humble, we can find ourselves in this story. And we can walk away from this worship service admiring, worshipful, that you would die for us. Help me to make that clear. It's a big passage, Lord. Help me to make it clear so that you may be loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this week I was thinking that perhaps the most disconcerting thing about being a pastor is uh, the emotional whiplash of all the different kinds of things you do. Uh, most people uh, think that pastors work one day a week and they think that this is, that my shift just started. <laughs> pastor friend of mine used to joke, one day a week of work and it's a split shift. It's not bad work if you can get it. Uh, the truth is, there's a lot to do. And the emotional and the mental whiplash between the different kinds of things that you are called on to do as a pastor is perhaps the most disconcerting. You can be working on a budget one moment and hearing someone heartbroken on the phone over some terrible evil that has befallen them a minute after that. And those ups and downs never change. And both as a pastor and as someone who's tried to come alongside uh, victims on one hand and law enforcement officers on the other, every once in a while I'll have to sit beside the victim of a crime. And in Mexico, one of the most heartbreaking things was to sit beside victims of crime who were actually victimized. Laws were broken, sins were committed, not by ordinary criminals, but by agents of the law themselves. That injustice, that cruelty, that disproportionate power that a group of men have guns and because of a corrupt system that has been created around them, the person in their power knows full well that not only will justice never be done, they won't even be heard and all they can do is hope to survive. It's traumatizing, it scars people, it often changes them for life. And that's what we find in Luke 22. If you'll read with me Luke 22, verse 63, I want, you to, I want you to take a look with me to see what we can see at the cross of Christ. Jesus has been arrested. Peter has denied him. Jesus has looked across the distance at Peter. Peter has been brokenhearted and has run out. And we read in verse 62 and wept bitterly. Now Jesus is entirely alone. The men who were holding Jesus in custody, I'm in Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They're playing a child's game from the ancient world, but they're playing with weapons. The children's game, and apparently there were several variations according to historians, was to blindfold one of the kids, and then sneak up on him and touch him. See if he could guess who it was. 
These men have blindfolded and, and I'm sure bound Jesus and are striking him with the urgency and the strength of men and saying, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, in other words, when that part of the illegality, when that part of the criminality, the man being held for trial is beaten overnight. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. This is, these are the religious authorities of Jesus, and they're no less violent. They led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Here's his answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Jesus is referring to Daniel chapter 7. They knew it. They heard it. I've mentioned Daniel chapter 7 for the last several weeks often because Jesus so often refers to it quietly as he does here. I'd like you, this won't be in your notes, but I'd like you to open your Bibles, hold your place in Luke, please, and look back with me in Daniel chapter 7. And I want you to see why their reaction is so strong and what claim Jesus is actually making. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel the prophet centuries earlier wrote this. Daniel 7, verse 13. Everybody have it? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself. You see it all over the Gospel of Luke. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, a title for God. This is God the Father. And was presented before him, and to him, to the son of man, it means, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you now understand why the authorities were angry with Jesus when he claimed this title? Jesus is looking back centuries into their prophecy and saying, I am the one of, that Daniel spoke of. Verse 69, back in Luke 22, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And for years, American, well, English readers of the English Bible have stumbled over that, asking themselves why Jesus won't give a straight answer. Anybody ever had that struggle? He did. He's using an idiom of his time. Some translations have, more, have stated this more directly. Jesus is using an idiom, an expression that was common to his day. In English, it would sound like this in our day. You ask me a question, you want an answer, and I say to you, you said it. What am I telling you through that? You're right. Some translations have said, have translated it this way, getting to the language that is behind what Jesus literally said. Some translations say this, you are right in saying that I am. That's direct. 
Why was Jesus indirect? He was emphatic that he used the expression to put some responsibility on them even as he answered the question because the whole trial is about his identity. He has just read or referenced Daniel chapter 7, a time in which he will reign and not only Israel but all the nations will serve him and there will be no end to his kingdom. They hear it and they ask him directly, are you then the son of God? And he says, you said it. Did Jesus give a clear answer? Read, read verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Absolutely, undeniably, all across his life, and especially at the moment of his trial from men who didn't want to hear it. He answered them, you said it, as if to say, you already know who I am. This is why you've brought me here. They heard the accusation. Jesus is speaking first of his identity. The first thing I can see at the cross is the identity of Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be the promised Savior and God in the flesh. No more, no less. Notice Luke says the men blasphemed him and they themselves questioning him say we don't need to hear anymore. He has turned himself in as the son of God. They don't believe him but his claim is clear. See one striking difference between Jesus and me and between Jesus and you is this. People will lie all the time to create a false identity. Jesus always told the truth about himself. Have you always told the truth about yourself? You ever let somebody have a good impression of you that wasn't quite deserved and you let them keep on thinking it? Ever change the camera angle so you look a little bit better? <laughs> ever tell somebody to get rid of that picture and certainly not post it? Have you ever been quiet in a job interview because if you answered honestly, you wouldn't get the job? These are minor things. These are human things. You're laughing because you recognize themselves. And it is in human nature to lie and posture all the time. It is one of the reasons that Jesus is going to the cross. Human beings lie all the time. They, die, they, they lie directly, they lie with cruelty, they lie with malice, and they lie a thousand other ways, letting what sh is the truth go unnoticed, unmentioned. Because we are always and only striving for identity. One of the sad conversations I have as a pastor is sometimes to meet with very old men who in their old age are still trying to find their identity. They're still not settled. They're still not peaceful. They're still not calm. The journey they began when they were nine or 10 years old has extended now for many decades. They still don't know exactly who they are. They don't dare tell me the truth because they think that I will think less of them, forgetting perhaps that I'm a sinner just as they are. All around Jesus, people are lying. All around the cross, deals are being made. All around the cross, cowardice and cruelty is being displayed. But Jesus is the promised Savior. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus always and only told the truth about himself. First, verse 1 of chapter 23, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. That was the religious trial 
but they need Rome to kill Jesus. They live only on delegated authority. They don't actually have the civil authority to carry out the death sentence for, that they want. For that, they will need this weak Roman governor named Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You can pick up on one of the lies already because we just studied it a few weeks ago. Did Jesus ever forbid giving taxes to Caesar? No, No, on the contrary. He took out a coin, showed it to people, and said, It looks like this belongs to Caesar. You better give it to him. We found this man misleading our nation forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The way they've presented the case is they have told Pilate, Pilate, there is a competitor for your kingdom. This man is an insurrectionist. He wants to dethrone you. He hates Caesar. He wants to raise people up in armed violence to cast you out. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him. You'll understand this better now. What did Jesus say? He said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. For all of his cruelty, because elsewhere we read in the Gospels that once Pilate had Jews killed while they worshipped and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. For all of his cowardice and for all of his conniving that you're about to experience, he's savvy. You don't get this high up in Roman politics without being clever. Pilate reads this immediately for what it is. This is a doctrinal dispute among men over a religious issue that does not concern him, that is no danger to Rome and no danger to Caesar at all. And now he has the courage at least to say he's not guilty. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. You don't understand, Pilate. He's inflamed this entire province. The fishermen of Galilee all the way to the seat of power. Everybody's upset. Your kingdom hangs by a thread. Rebels are coming. Here's the cowardice. Here's politics at its worst on display. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Who's Herod? Herod, if anything, is worse than Caesar. He's a princeling with no principles. He's a puppet king put there by Rome to half-heartedly appease the people. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So we questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Herod sees Jesus as some kind of conjurer and some cheap magician. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and only Luke tells you this, some Pharisees came to Jesus and says you need to, and told him you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus spoke with the authority of God who knew Herod's heart, exposing the kind of man he was. 
You'll notice in verse 67, when the, at the religious trial, Jesus said in verse 67, if I tell you, you will not believe. Now here in verse 9 in chapter 23, we read, Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. What is happening here? Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God on earth. And because of that, he not only has his identity, because of his identity, he has authority. And you should take this lesson to heart. Jesus reserves the right always to say no more to people who reject him. Do not get accustomed to telling the Lord no. He may stop dealing with you. I don't know you. There's literally no way with this setup, people stretched out 180 degrees in front of me, and I don't know how many people and where watching online, so I'm not aiming this at any individual. You should know that about me. Anytime I'm preaching, if you hear, if you think that I'm speaking very personally about things that concern you, please know that I, if I knew that there were personal issues to deal with, I'd talk to you privately. It's dumb and cowardly for pastors to preach one sermon against one guy they're upset with beat the whole congregation up because they're upset with one dude. I don't do that. But I'm teaching you a principle in, in God's word. You can find it actually all across scripture and all kinds of stories and all kinds of warnings. God is sovereign. He's long, he's long suffering and patient. He's not willing, Peter tells us, that any should perish, but instead he wants all to come to repentance. But when faced with hard-heartedness, there is a time when God in his sovereignty simply stops talking to people who reject him. If you've come to church, it's extremely unlikely that you're in that crowd. But you could be. When I was a teenager, I quietly walked away from the Lord, only on the inside where it actually matters. On the outside, I kept all the Christian charade going. Fooled almost everybody, except probably my mother who prayed all the more intensely for me. Because she could tell that what was happening on the inside had changed me ever so slightly on the outside. Jesus was very patient with me in calling me back to himself. That dryness, that willfulness, that hard-heartedness, thank God literally was ultimately broken by his patience and by his love. But some of you have heard the gospel. You've heard the claims of Jesus week after week after week, and you've never actually surrendered to Jesus to be his disciple. Jesus owes you nothing. After many years of striving with you, he may decide to not speak to you any longer. He may, in other words, turn you over to your own heart's desires. When you're dealing with Jesus, you're not dealing with the force that can be turned on and off like electricity. You're dealing with a person who is the sovereign son of God, who's in charge of everything, who made everything. And as a professor of mine in Bible college said, I never forgot it. For those of you planning on deathbed conversions, he said, don't plan on blowing the ashes of a wasted life into the face of a holy God. I was 19 when I heard that and it stuck with me. 
whether you are his disciple and you are chronically telling him no or telling him later, stop. Repent of that. Turn around. Come back the other way. You will only harm yourself. You will do him no harm. You can't hurt him. He's sovereign and strong and utterly in charge. He's even in charge at the scene of his own crucifixion. This blindfold, this beating, the spitting, the beard ripping, all the things that the gospel writers tell us, all the atrocities that were heaped upon Jesus, he submitted to them willingly. He said to his disciples he could have untold thousands of angels to defend him at any moment, at every moment in all of eternity. He is perfectly in charge. So please, if you're hearing the gospel and putting him off, please stop and take him as your Savior. And if he's already your Savior, stop telling him no. Stop giving him charge of part of your life and give him your whole life. He's the only one who can run it. He's the only one who knows what is best for it. In Herod's case, Jesus, we read in verse 9, simply makes no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, and he sent him back to Pilate. Even this is mockery. Jesus is beaten and battered. He's bloodied by now. And Herod mockingly puts king's clothing on him and sends him back to Pilate saying, I've had all the fun I can. He's yours now. Listen to the evil, the political machinery in Jesus' time. Nothing has changed. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day for before this they had been at enmity with each other. That's an interesting side note. Herod and Pilate hated each other to that day. Their conflicting rivalries, their conflicting egos had led them to be enemies. Now they are both rejecting Christ. They are both blaspheming God. But Jesus is bringing reconciliation even to wicked men such as this. Verse 12. Verse 13. Then Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. How do you like that? He's done nothing wrong, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat him. Turn him free. Even the solution is injustice. But that won't do for the crowd. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Luke explains, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. You see the irony? They're accusing Jesus of what? Insurrection. Who do they want released? An actual insurrectionist who's already spilled blood. Please remember, 
This is a further picture, an even darker picture, and it's going to get worse of what it means to clash with the authority of Jesus. A rejection of Jesus is always in favor of self. The question is, who's going to run your life? Who's going to be in charge of your life? The reason people won't come to Christ is they refuse him as Savior and Lord. They may want him for blessings. They may want him for help, but always on their terms. And Jesus is not a butler. He's not a servant. He's not a service provider. He's the king. He's the son of God who will someday come in clouds and all the nations will come before him and worship him and serve him and thank him because I read in the end of the Bible that Jesus will gather from every tribe, tongue, and nation a crowd around himself praising God and thanking Jesus for his sacrifice. He is absolutely and undeniably in charge Put him in charge. Lest you choose for yourself sins that are even worse as this crowd is doing. They want Barabbas. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified a brutal sentence from human history. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Sit with that just for a second. We bring you this man because he's dangerous to you. He's done nothing wrong. We demand that you see him for what he is. He's done nothing wrong. We insist. I'll punish and release him. No, instead, give us Barabbas. We have this custom once a year where you show mercy in your sovereignty and your authority where you release one prisoner. Give us Barabbas and take Jesus away. And Jesus, Luke says, was delivered over to the will of the mob screaming for the blood of the Son of God. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, a man from North Africa, Luke tells us. He's there for the holy day. He does not, he has come to celebrate the Passover. Now he's swept up in the story of the passion, of the suffering and the death of Jesus. He was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Can you see this scene? Some are laughing in self-satisfaction that it's all worked and they're actually going to kill him. He's carrying now the Roman cross, but he's too weak to carry it. He's exhausted, he's been beaten, he's been deprived of sleep, he's been given no food and no comfort of any kind. Already the cross is too heavy for him. A man who has nothing to do with any of this is carrying, is carrying it for him and along the way women who believe him and love him are wailing and weeping and mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, this is a quiet little detail in the crucifixion. It's hardly ever mentioned. It's hardly ever preached. This may be my first time actually in explaining it. 
but I want you to see the character of Christ even now. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What's he talking about? In 30-some years, Rome, who these men cowardly, cravenly, deceitfully said they defended would circle Jerusalem and Titus the Roman would breach the walls and destroy the temple and spill blood in sacred places and profane the temple. Jesus is saying with this dark word picture of green trees and dry trees, he's saying this, I've come in peace, I've come to give refreshment. I'm not kindling looking to start a fire of war but they're killing me. Imagine what they will do when I, the Prince of Peace, am gone. And exactly right. Blood, fire, and destruction was going to engulf Jerusalem 30-some years later. What are we learning about Jesus? Jesus is, in his grace, his concern is always to save people from coming judgment even as he bears the agony of walking the final steps toward the gate that is going to lead him out of the city to his crucifixion, even now he is speaking words of warning and comfort and salvation to anyone who will listen, even to women of no particular importance who can only cry when they see him. That idea that Jesus is always trying to save people from coming judgment is now going to be magnified in an extraordinary way. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said famously, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Can you see the callousness of these soldiers? They've been responsible, these men, for many deaths. They were likely, I would imagine, on a crucifixion detail. Before the Jewish rebellion was over, one historian would remark that there was no wood left to make crosses and no space left to put them if they could make them. My paraphrase, not his words. These soldiers at the foot of the cross of Christ are well accustomed to death. Rome has established its authority by willing to be willing to commit genocidal violence against anyone who opposes them. The callousness of these men is seen even now as a man gasps for his life and blood pours down his cross. They sit at the foot of the cross gambling for what little he owned. What is Jesus thinking? What is Jesus asking? Now he addresses the Father and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are bloody, murderous, violent, callous men. Father, forgive them at least this one sin because this one time they're acting in ignorance. They do not know they're killing the Son of God. Jesus is always hoping, always working, always 
at work to save people from coming judgment. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. It's one long, murderous mockery. They didn't know it. But the one thing they did to mock him, to put him in royal robes that were not his own, but belonged instead to a despicable man, the greeting they gave him even as they beat him and called him a king. But this one time they were right. What was normally part of the humiliation of the cross where the crimes of the man who was dying on the cross were placed beside him on his own cross so that people could see what he did and curse him for it. Oh, you kill children, do you? Good. I'm glad you're on the cross and I hope it hurts. I hope no one comforts you. There are no charges against Jesus. They hurl what they think is a final insult against him. But all they do is recognize his kingly authority. That there's a story of grace here because Jesus is always working. Even in the moments before his death, his mind is always on others to save people from coming judgment. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You'll notice the authorities, the crowd, and one of the criminals are all saying to Jesus, save yourself. Why won't he do it? Because he's dying to save them. And one man broke through in humility. One man was reached by the grace of God to understand it. Look in verse 40. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's confession. In the last moments of his life, in the few hours he was beside Jesus, this man said, I'm getting what I deserve. The man named Jesus beside me has done nothing wrong, verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A simple request spoken through bloody lips, probably blood bubbling on those lips because this man is irretrievably doomed and broken. He will soon be dead. But he summons up enough strength to make a request filled with faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Perhaps he had heard himself He had heard Jesus call himself the Son of Man. Perhaps he had understood what the authority said was a blasphemous connection all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. Certainly he had heard of the miracles. Even Herod has heard of the miracles and wants to see one. This man believes that the cross will not be the end of Jesus. He believes that the cross will kill all three of them, but he believes that Jesus someday, somehow, will come into his kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say today, to you, today you will be with me where? In paradise. 
A story that has given hope to countless people who have wondered whether Jesus can actually forgive them, and especially at the last moment. Listen to the grace of Christ. Truly I say today to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is grace. Because the identity of the Son of God and the authority of Jesus is all going to be used not to save himself, but to save others. Even one man who agrees with his condemnation, amazing the humility of this man to die on the cross and rather than curse his killers in the last moments of life saying, I'm dying because I deserve it, but Jesus, I believe you can save me. This is grace. And J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, I really recommend him to you, said this, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. And that's exactly my message to you. The sins of the whole world are seen at the cross, but so is their solution. Every evil thing, both great and small, that human beings are capable of are all seen at the cross. Every wicked thing the human heart can come up with, self-serving and flat-out ugly, awful, appalling, and evil, it's all on display. And on the cross is dying the solution for all those sins. The political maneuvering, the self-serving, the cruelty, the cursing, all the things seen around the cross of Jesus are the very reason he died. Please understand this, and I'm through. Jesus didn't die as an abstraction. He died for your lies. He died for your pride. He died for your addiction. He died for your self-seeking. He died for your self-destruction. All of the things that alienate you and separate you from God, all the things that your conscience troubles you over, those are the things that took Jesus to the cross. This is the message of Christ and his church every single Sunday and should be every time this scripture is open, that Jesus is utterly in charge. He is the son of God. He has the authority of God himself, but by great love and mercy bends all of his identity and bids all of his authority to save sinners. And no sinner should lose hope. No sinner should despair, as Ryle said, because even in the last moments, you can be snatched back by the grace and the mercy of God. But you should also remember that one of those men having the same opportunity marched on insistently to judgment. You should never presume that you'll have another opportunity or that you'll get to say yes to Jesus later. Let's pray. Let me just ask you, online or in the tent, do you know Christ? Is he in charge of you? The trial of Jesus' evidence was demanded. Do you have evidence that gives you comfort that Jesus is your Savior and Lord? If you don't, I'm inviting you. I'm actually pleading with you in the name of Jesus to turn away from yourself, give up on your sin, and surrender to him. And tell him, Lord, I understand your identity. I yield to your authority. Please save me. Forgive my sin. Take charge of me. Save me, please. Make me your disciple. Forgive my sin. Give me the assurance that you gave this man that someday I'll be with you in paradise. 
you do that this morning, please let us know. Send us a text with his name, the name of Jesus, to the number that's on your screen. If you're here in the tent, I'd love for you to fill out a card and leave it at the exit, one of the baskets. And Christian, this is your king. This is your savior. Dying, even as he's dying, pleading, even as he's on trial, a trial he doesn't deserve, receding blows that belong to me, not to him. Even then, he's pleading with truthfulness for your obedience, for your heart, for your loyalty. Would you please give it to him? Would you please stop telling him no? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us in this way. I pray for those, Lord, who are watching online. It's a strange way you've allowed us to deal, Lord, with you in this time. But some are really struggling, and I pray for them that today would be the day they cross the line where they kill off their pride and they surrender to you and they call you boss and savior. If there's anyone here, Lord, listening in this first service to this sermon, I pray that they would look past me and my explanations and see you fully and trust you and say to you, Jesus, I surrender. Here are my sins. Please save me. And for those of us who are your disciples, Lord, help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk in loyalty. Help us to see you there on the cross and later, Lord, taking your life back perfectly in charge. Help us to love you and trust you so much we will do the revolutionary thing of actually doing all that you say and obeying you from a whole humble heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Crosspoint said, amen. amen. On Good Friday, we'll look at just a few verses, the final moments of Jesus' life. I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll invite your friends and your family to both Good Friday and East and to our services on Resurrection Sunday. If you need help, if you need counsel, listen, it doesn't matter to me if you're online and online only. I correspond and talk to people that are only online every week. Makes no difference to me. We're here to help. We're here to serve. We're here to point you to Jesus. If we can help you online or if you're here in person, please, please let us know. We're willing to help, but we're not mind readers. If you'll let us know, we'll do all we can to help and bless you in the name of Jesus. God bless you. Love you. Bye-bye.